Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Once again, we're going to do, uh, we're going to continue looking at the Trey Asar, where in the first half we're going to look at Ovadia and Yona. Then we'll have a break and then we'll come back and we'll look at the prophet Micha, because the prophet Micha is turbo. If you were going to tell one person, if you're going to tell a person to read one book of the prophets, despite the fact that all of the prophets are amazing and some of the prophets are phenomenally important and revolutionary and deep, Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's impossible to me to understand how someone could have a spiritual conception of the Jewish people without reading Isaiah or Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, just mind-blowing. But if you're going to tell a person, they say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to a desert island and I can only take one prophet, I would say take the prophet Micha. However, because he really sums up the whole thing, but in the second half we'll talk more about that, we're going to talk about two extremely interesting and important people and books in the first half. And the first of those is, uh, is really a book that uh, no one can be excused for not reading. Uh, did anyone have a look at the book of Avadia? Good. The reason, why, the reason why no one's got an excuse is because it's the shortest book in Talach. It's the shortest book in the whole Bible. It is one chapter long of 21 verses. However, however, we're still going to talk about it because it's an important text and it's got some very, very interesting things going on about. Uh, And really, our entire range for the prophetic revolution of the Jewish people, this entire project we call the Nevi'im, really can be contained in a timeline that goes, say, from round about minus 800 to minus 500. In fact, you could probably even shorten that to minus 750 to minus 550. It's really over a couple of centuries that this whole phenomenon takes place. But uh, for the sake of clarity, we'll do the timeline like this. Um, And uh, once again, once again, very important uh, to remember that for most of this period, well, certainly for this century, in the first wave of prophets that we've looked at so far, Hosea, Amos, and indeed uh, even Isaiah himself, are sitting in this first wave of prophets, and that is really backgrounded against the existence of two kingdoms. It's very, very difficult to understand the historical context of these prophets without understanding these two parallel kingdoms of Israel in the north, sometimes called Samaria, and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And Judah had the Davidic dynasty. It was more or less more politically stable. The north was actually very economically prosperous, but more politically unstable and more given to outside influences. And so last week we looked at the prophet Hosea, the prophet Amos, who were the first really to stand up and try and shift the people's perception about what God is, about how God is worshipped, about the 
importance of the divine call and also the human demand for social justice, for equity in society. They want a society that looks nice, not a society that's doing well when a lot of people are being oppressed and exploited and the values are all corrupt. And of course, they're very, very concerned with the fact that this degradation in social justice is allied with Israel getting involved in all sorts of ooga-booga and other types of religious ideas, many of which have deeply immoral practices associated with them. So that's the first wave. Now the book of Ovadia like Yoel, remember Yoel? We couldn't really date Yoel. Yeah, there are, there are three books in the Bible that are very, very difficult for us to posit historically. One is Yoel, and the one is the book of Ovadia, and the other book which we're not talking about right now is the book of Job, the book of Eov. But the book of Ovadia really could have two possible moments when this prophecy could have been uttered. And there's, a, there's one that the rabbis suggest, and then there's one that historians think is more likely. The one the rabbis suggest is actually back here, which would kind of make Ovadja the first prophet. Because there is a figure called Ovadja, the word Ovadja means the servant of God. There is a prophet called Ovadja that is mentioned in the book of Kings as having an encounter with Elijah the prophet. Elijah is on the run. Elijah obviously was on the run from a lot of things, but he was being, basically there was a, a warrant out for his arrest, put out by Ahav and Izebel, Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked king and queen of the northern kingdom. And he was, Elijah was helped by a person called Ovadia who was in fact an administrator within the court of the king who nevertheless deeply felt that the prophets should be protected and he actually protected and he sustained a hundred prophets in a cave. He hid them from the wrath of the king and queen who wanted to kill all the prophets of God and he has an encounter with Elijah and he helps him. So that is one possible idea. The rabbis go, oh, he's Ovadia and here's Ovadia and we're going to make him a descendant of proselytes from Edom, so that's why he's prophesying against Edom, and so on, and that fits nicely. But the likelihood is that, in fact, there's another more specific, perhaps, historical context in which we could place Ovadia, and that is later, much later. You see, like Israel, Edom was a nation that went through different cycles of flourishing and decline and different political transformations. Edom, the classic Edom that we understand, is actually, I'll do it in red because Edom, Adom, Kaboom, Edom is kind of here, in the southeast of Israel. And probably more like the southern Jordan of today. Famously, famously 
the Torah tells us that Edom is a descendant of a south of Esau. Esau, of course, was a brother of Jacob. So we were always given to understand that the Edomites were kind of like Mishpacha. Kind of. But they had a very, very different history. And it would appear that when we were kind of in decline, they were sort of flourishing. And they too coalesced as a, as a political entity. They didn't have kings for a long time. They had alufim. And the word aluf means a kind of generally a military leader, a general, and a, a tribal warlord. And eventually they came together sometime around here, probably in the 8th century, and they formed a kingdom. They did get schmeist by the early kings of Israel, but then they re-coalesced and they reformed. And as we were actually going into a kind of a decline through these following couple of centuries here, the Edomites were coalescing and were more or less a more uh, stable political entity. But what happened was, as you know, because we looked at it, when we looked at the books of Jeremiah, and we looked at the books of Ezekiel, that here the temple is destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem, our temple, is destroyed in minus 586. And what we're given to understand from the chroniclers of Israel is that the Edomites took advantage of the invasion of the Babylonians and were pretty much cheering them on and also got their hands grubby and got involved in the act of destruction and some sources will tell us that will go as far as saying that it could even be that it was the Edomites who destroyed the temple. Obviously, under Babylonian supervision, the Babylonians came, they conquered Jerusalem, they destroyed Jerusalem, they plundered it, but it was actually the Edomites who destroyed the temple, although that's a very, very marginal view. The main view is that the Babylonians destroyed the temple, but the Edomites were right in there getting out of it whatever they could. They made uh, appropriations of land, they made incursions due to the horrendous political turmoil and obviously military turmoil that Judah was going through at the time. And so what we find in, the, in, in literature after that in Tanakh and elsewhere is that the Jewish people were very, very, very upset with the Edomites. And you can see that reflected in the book of Psalms and you can see it reflected elsewhere. Edom was not considered... Uh, in a positive, it was considered a very, very negative light because of their role in that. So really, that's the second place that we can posit. A lot of scholars are saying, well, really, Ovadia is actually talking about Edom, and he's talking about the Edomites after the destruction of the first temple, and that would make sense, and he's prophesying their doom. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. I want to just say a couple more minutes on Edom, because when we open up the book, we can see... Uh, look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
it might be a very short book, but the book of Ovadia is probably the favorite text of conspiracy theorists. <laughs> because once Edom finishes as an integral nation, it continues as a kind of ethno-spiritual <coughs> ethno projection into history. And I will explain what that means. There are many entities mentioned in the Bible, mentioned in Tanakh by the Nevi'im, who later generations have understood, have transmogrified, no one knows what that word means, but you know, understand, you do understand, transmogrified into more spiritual projections in history rather than being strictly a specific race in a specific place. And Edom is a classic example of that. The Edomites do continue as a nation throughout the Second Temple period, and they take on a new brand name later on, especially under the Romans, once the Romans come into town, which is not until the first century BCE. So 400 years after, 450 years after our timeline here ends is when the Roman period in Judea begins, by which time the Edomites are known as the Idumeans. And there's very little question about who put an end to Idumean political autonomy. Who put an end to Idumean political autonomy? We did. Oh, we did. During the Hasmonean kingdom, under John Hyrcanus, and in around 1 minus 120, 130, he went down and he geschmeist the Idumeans and he took the entire nation of the Idumeans and he forcibly converted them to Judaism. He gave all the men a Brit Milah and he threw the entire nation in the River Jordan. That was their big mikvah. And he said, you're now Jews. That is exactly parallel, exactly parallel to what would have happened. Don't get confused. It didn't happen. But to what would have happened if in 1967, when we took the West Bank, we'd taken all of the Palestinians living there and forcibly and just said to them, you're all now Jewish. Isn't that this idea that Jews do not proselytize or forced convert sounds nice, and it has been true for most of the last couple of millennia, but not then. Things evolve. They evolve before and they'll evolve again. As a result of that conversion, as a result of that forced national conversion, that was to have a very bad karma for us. The Hasmoneans made several mistakes. I believe that was one of them. History would tend to bear that out. That had a bad karma for us because fast forward a couple of generations from that forced conversion, by the time you get to minus 40, you see the rise of one of the descendants, only, you know, whose grandfather probably was part of that conversion and comes into power, and that is Herod. Herod is an Idumean. He is half Idumean, half Hasmonean, 
three quarters Roman, five quarters Herod. He's a whole mix, but he rises to power. And of course, Herod was a ruler that got the Romans to back him and believed very, very much that the destiny of the Jewish people was intimately linked with their subservience to Rome. And Herod was one of the biggest suck-ups to Rome, you could imagine, uh, because he saw that that was really... And at the, and at the, I mean, at the time, there was only one superpower in business, and that was Rome. And if you didn't do what Rome wanted, that was going to be very bad, as was subsequently shown. And Herod was very, very much of the opinion that it was in the interests of the, Jew, of, of the Jewish people to be allied with Rome. As a result of which, throughout the very late Second Temple period and a little bit beyond, Edom, the nation of Edom, became identified with Rome. So much so, in fact, that you'll even find some Midrashim, some rabbinic speculations, legendary speculations that will tell you that back here, it was the Edomites who, after they were defeated by King David and whatever, went off to Italy and founded Rome. That, whether or not that has any historical value is a separate discussion, but what it highlights is how, throughout the very late Second Temple period, the nation of Edom had become identified with Rome. And that association continued because by the time you get to the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries and beyond, once you get even especially into the Middle Ages, Edom is not simply identified with Rome, but what happened to Rome? It's identified with Christianity. Edom is seen as a marker in the Bible, as a signifier, a symbol, which indicates the spiritual project of Christianity. Just as Yishmael is seen as the spiritual project of Yishmael, its ethno-spiritual projection into history, which is Islam. So that the rabbis of the Middle Ages are describing the Crusades, for example, not as a fight between, between uh, you know, the forces of the Holy Roman Empire of the United Christian Western Europe and uh, the forces of a united pan-Arab entity in the Middle East. It's a fight between Christianity and Islam, which of course it was, and is, and they describe that in terms, when they talk about that, they talk about Edom and Yishmael. Right up until the 19th century in rabbinic literature, Rome slash Christianity is identified with Edom. Now I know that Christianity today is a very complex church. <laughs> it's a very complex 
spiritual world. But the rabbis, when they talk about Edom as Christianity, are not talking about all the warm, fuzzy Protestant um, denominations that you'll find around today. They are identifying it with Rome, so specifically Roman Catholicism, which they saw and still see as the primary embodiment of Edom. Does everybody understand what I'm saying here? So be aware, when you type the book of Ovadia in the internet and you are assailed by dozens of conspiracy theory blog sites, you've got to realize that that very identification itself has a Jewish origin. And it evolved in the late Second Temple and early Mishnaic period uh, especially after Bar Kokhba and so on, this idea that that Edom. So, and you know what? You know what? I mean, when you read the Book of Avadia and you don't like Rome, then it kind of speaks to you. Zadon libcha hishiecha, the arrogance over your heart has deceived you, Shochni Bachagvesela, you who live in the clefts of rocks. Oh, cleft of rocks. Why? Because this area contains Petra. Petra later on got occupied by Nabataeans and other kind of nomadic Semitic tribes that were moving up into the into the lower Negev and into that part of uh, of, of the region. But Edom was known as a nation that lived in towns and cities that were built into rocks and out of rocks and they are referred to by the prophet of Vajra as living. Now don't get confused, I talked about a lot of different historical points here but Ovadia is either written here but very likely around here. So, uh, you see... Just look at um, just look at the first. I mean, the first chapter. The this this thing of Ovadia, which is very interesting, because some people, you know, these conspiracy theorists, have a look at this. The whole thing, by the way, the this single chapter of Ovadia, the whole chapter of Ovadia, is a prophecy about Edom. It's a prophecy about the fall, the decline and fall of Edom, and just how they're going to get their comeuppance for their. Um, behavior towards Israel. So that, that, that Pasuk Gimel that I just quoted to you, have a look inside, that third Pasuk. You live in the clefts of rock. The height of his dwelling place. Omer belibo says Edom. Edom says in its heart, Who's going to bring me down to earth? Edom was identified with a type of arrogance. Have a look at sentence four. Im tagbia kanesher. If you raise yourself up like an eagle. And remember, the eagle, symbol of Rome. And then you start saying, well, you know what? If Edom is going to symbolize that kind of arrogance, that kind of power arrogance and saying who's going to bring me down I'm the superpower nothing's going to happen to me 
and you've got a symbol like an eagle, then in the 21st century, a lot of these people on the fringes of the, of, of the sane world are saying, well, maybe it's not it's Rome anymore. It was once Rome, but now it's kind of, maybe it's the United States. And then they look at the next phrase in that verse and they go, V'im ben kochavim sim And even if you were to nest yourself amongst the stars, Misham oridchan um Hashem, from there I shall bring you down, says God. And so the entire uh, chapter, single chapter of this book, is a, a, a projection about the destruction of Edom. I want to say one more thing about Avadji before we move on to a brief discussion of Yonah, because I'm just looking at the time, and I want to make sure that we talk about Yonah. But there's another interesting thing I just want to talk about in relation to Avadji. Many people do not realize this. Is that Avadja, apart from being highly uh, symbolic in many other ways, is the source of a remarkable prophecy uh, towards the end that is not necessarily a prophecy, depending on how you look at it, but rather the source for something that was going to happen. And that is that, as you know, the Jewish people went through a very, very long exile. Two millennia. No nation has done that. No nation has done that. Plenty of nations have gone into oblivion, but no nation has gone into exile, stayed coherent with the same project for two thousand years and then come back to the same place that they left and tried to restart again. During the course of that exile, starting from the late Gaonic period onwards, so from round about 7-800 CE, so about 1200 years ago, over the course of the next few centuries, there was a gradual shift away from what had been the center of that exile, which was Babylonia, in contemporary Iraq, westward. That demographic shift westward of the Jewish world went in two fundamental directions. It went in two fundamental directions. There's Babylonia, it went here, and it went here. From around about between, say, 7-800 CE up to about 12-1300. Well, no, 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 already about 1100. So that Babylonia itself was no longer the center of the Jewish world by the time you get to the 11th century. And that, in fact, two new centers had been formed. And for the next 800 years until today, 900 years till today, till the 20th century those two parts of the Jewish world formed the primary cultural, not ethnic, but cultural distinction within the Jewish world between Ashkenazic Jewry, who were centred mostly in the Middle Ages in France and Germany, 
and the Sephardic world, which was centered in North Africa and Spain. Everybody follow? Those two great exilic destinations, very interesting that they have their source in the book of Ovadia. Because if you, when you look at the end of the book of Ovadia, you will see that he talks about the lands of Sfarad and he talks about the land of Tsorfat. Tsorfat is France. The word Ashkenaz actually comes from a similar prophecy that's taken from the book of Jeremiah. But this kind of prophecy about this exile is really, uh, its source is, is in the book of Avadja. So whether or not you want to say that people got to this place and they said, ah, oh, let's use the names in the book of Avadja to describe what, where we're living, maybe, or the other possibility is that the prophetic imagination uh, is divinely inspired and that that was actually something foreseen by Ovadja. But it's an interesting aspect. That's Ovadja, ladies and gentlemen. 500 BCE. Now, moving on, because I want to talk about Yonah before we have a break, because really, uh, maybe we'll have to talk about Yonah before and after the break if we don't get it done. But, look, <laughs> but let's talk about Yonah for a minute. Yonah is a <laughs> Yonah, but it's such a simple story that we learn as children and yet is so phenomenally deep. So it's a story we all know and we all learned it at Cheder and we all hear it, most of us, most of us hear it once a year at least because it's read on the afternoon of Yom Kippur. And there's no more captive audience than the afternoon of Yom Kippur because you've got nowhere to go, you've got nothing to do, so you just sit and you follow and you listen uh, to the book of Yonah. The book of Yonah, of course, is read on Yom Kippur afternoon because it is a book, once again, about this essentially massive theme that runs right through the prophets, this idea of teshuvah, this idea of transformation, that human beings are given the ability not simply to change their behavior, but by changing their behavior, changing the world around them, and by changing their behavior and changing the world around them, are actually able to redeem the past as much as they create a better future. And really... Yonah is very appropriate after Ovadia because it's quite amazing. Because you're going, Ovadia is a one-chapter prophecy that's not even about Israel. It's about Edom. So it's starting to demonstrate that this, I, this, this revolution that has already happened with Hosea and Amos and will continue to be emphasized by Isaiah about the universalization of God, that God is not simply a divine entity related to the Jewish people in the land of Israel, but is in fact God of the whole world, and that God demands justice from all nations, how they behave to each other. The Jewish people come under an extra special uh, examination on how we behave to each other as individuals. But nations are judged morally from our perspective. 
And so therefore, Ovadia calls upon Edom because Edom has not behaved in a moral or just way. Yonah is a book that does not even mention Israel. Doesn't mention the Jewish people. Where is Yonah living on this timeline? He's obviously living in the land of Israel. When? I'll tell you. And because that context... Sorry? Yeah. He's living... Remember from last week I gave a great big historical excursus we went into on the what's going on in the Northern Kingdom in the middle of the 700s. Jeroboam II is on the throne. It's a very stable period. It's a very economically prosperous period. Hosea and Amos did not pop up at a time of economic decline and say, oh, I'll tell you why it's all going bad and why there's been a global financial crisis. He's there getting up and saying, you're doing very well economically because you're all horrible and because you're all exploiting and because you've got no morality and no ethics. It is during that time it is during that time that the prophet Yonah, what is the meaning of the word Yonah? Dove. That the prophet Yonah is sent not to tell, the, like Hosea and Amos, to tell the kings and the priests of the northern kingdom about the impending doom and about how God's unhappy and about how they have to transform their religious and political and economic and social and cultural way of life. Yonah is sent to another nation. This is remarkable. He is sent by God to prophesy to another nation. Yonah is here. Now the book's very simple. It's got four chapters. It's got four chapters. One chapter happens in a boat. Another one in a fish. Another one in a city. And another one in a hilltop outside that city. It's a very, very neatly structured book. It's one of the most kind of coherent structured books of the entire Bible. And very, very difficult to understand some of it. It's really easy to understand. A child can understand how someone gets swallowed by a fish. But very difficult to understand thematically. First of all, why does Yonah... I'm not going to tell the the whole story because I'm sure you're familiar with it. But why does Yonah run away? I mean, Yonah is the hamlet of the Bible. He's an anti-prophet. It's like, oh, I don't really want to, I don't want to go. And then afterwards, we're going to see all of his mental contortions are going to go on. But why does he run away? Why does he not want to go to Nineveh? Well, he's worried that he doesn't want to be a prophet. That's very interesting. He's scared. Well, he's more worried about his own skin. So he's scared that he might succeed. Oh. That is actually kind of, um, that's kind of, in line or in tune with what actually happens at the, in the last chapter of the book. He's afraid there, that he won't succeed. Yes. He's afraid that he won't succeed. Um, 
all of those reasons. He doesn't like confrontation. First of all, if Yona is scared of what the Assyrians will do to him in Nineveh, he, he, that doesn't necessarily gel with the type of guy that says, throw me in the water. Right? Like, Yona is fully aware that he's dealing with God here. But he's had his... He's had his... Well, maybe. It was actually when they find him in the boat, it's, he's asleep. No, 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 it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Here's, no, here's the deal. Yonah doesn't want to go because where is God asking him to go? Nineveh. What's Nineveh? It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. What are the Assyrians going to do in the next 30, 40 years? They're going to wipe out the northern kingdom and they're going to conquer all of Judah except for Jerusalem. He knows that if the, if the city of Nineveh does a form of repentance, they will be given the merit to be the agency by which God will punish Israel. He kind of doesn't want the Assyrians to do repentance. He wants the Assyrians to be destroyed. Now, this is not overtly in the book. But this is how all of the sages of Israel have understood the story of Yonah. Because at the end of the day, God comes and says, you have, you have to go to Nineveh and you have to prophesy, we're going to, say, we're going to run away from God. You know, run away from God. Even on the very superficial level of a child thinking, oh, he's going to run away from God, the book has a very profound message in its, what it's conveying about our understanding of God, which we now take for granted, that God is universal. It's a bit like when we saw Ezekiel and people went to Babylonia, people went to Babylon and they're sitting around going, can God even hear us here? That is a transformation that happens, and Yona is part of that transformation. The, he jumps on a ship. The ship is going to Tarshish, which could be one of a couple of different places. And by the way, by the way, just because thoughts are coming to me about Yona, the book of Yona is not the only time that Yona ben Amitai is mentioned. Anyone else know where Yonah bin Amitai is mentioned in the Bible? Is something to do with Samuel? No. It is, in fact, um, if, if, if we understand that the Yonah bin Amitai, and if we, are, if we are placing Yonah bin Amitai here, then he's very old. In fact, it could be argued, it could argue that, in fact, he's kind of earlier because this is probably actually already too late. He probably would get killed if he went to Assyria here. So maybe it's a bit earlier, a few decades earlier. Because prior to this, I'll just very quickly, you remember the, uh, you remember the, uh, I talked last week about the figure of Yehu who had wiped out the whole of the Omri household. Uh, when God told Elijah to anoint a new king of the northern kingdom, uh, after the horrendous uh, acts of, of Ahav 
Uh, Elijah didn't end up anointing a new king. He gave that job to Elisha, his acolyte, who became the prophet after him. Elisha did not end up doing that. Elisha gave the job to another prophet, and that prophet was Yonah ben Amittai. Yonah ben Amittai was actually the prophet that anointed Yehu. But we find him in a different context here. So he jumps on a ship, and the ship hits a storm, and the ship, this Anya, it was about to break up. It was like this storm was seriously violently knocking it. And once again, once again, look at the amazing text here. All of the sailors on the boat start praying to their gods. Once again, a theme of universalization. You've got different gods, different systems, different spiritual outlooks all happening on this boat. And they're all praying to their gods. And then the captain of the ship goes down below the deck and he finds Jonah asleep. He's having a schluff while this violent storm is literally about to capsize the boat and everyone's freaking out and they're all on the deck. Oh, save us, save us. And he's like, and he wakes up and he says, what are you, what's going on? And he goes, because I know why this is happening. Because I know why this is happening. This is happening because there's only one God. And that one God told me to go to Nineveh. And I didn't. Well, what are we going to do? And once again, the only thing you can do is throw me overboard. That's the only thing that's going to happen. We don't, we're not going to throw. Amazingly, amazingly, these Sailors do not want to throw someone they perceive to be an innocent man overboard. It's a horrendous thing. But in the end, he goes, you've got no choice. The rabbis tell us, that you read all the Midrash on Yonah, it's phenomenal. I mean, I don't want to go too much into Midrash because I want to focus primarily on what the text actually says. But if you go into Midrash, they go into this thing and they talk about the fact that, first of all, they took like, just, they, they held him over the side of the boat right and then they just put a foot in and and as soon as I put a foot in the ocean calmed but they brought him up again because they didn't want to throw him in then as soon as they brought him up again the ocean once again so this time they dunk him and they dunk him up to his waist and they pull him out and eventually eventually they just had to let him go and as soon as they let him go of course the ocean was calm and then as the rabbis tell you um all the sailors then convert to Judaism uh, as, as the rabbis perceive that. Anyone non-Jewish in the Bible who does something good, they have, they have to convert to Judaism. And then this great big, it's not a whale, it's not a whale. It's a fish, it's a dug. It's a dug, it's a fish. Where did they get A big whale. Oh, big fish. Most of our, many, many, many of our perceptions of Jonah come from, from medieval paintings. Uh, and and uh, look, look you, you, because what, what, what we understand is it's extremely constricted in there. It's not, you know, you get these paintings of Jonah sitting there kind of with a, in a big lounge room with the rib cage as the walls and he's got, he's got a chaise lounge and he's got a candle and he's there and he's like, whatever. It wasn't like that at all. He's, it's very, very, very constrictive. And in fact, the Midrash tells us that he was swallowed by a male fish that then spat him out into a female fish 
and the female fish was pregnant, so the whole thing was even more constrictive. Eventually, it wasn't until Yonah prays this prayer, this very intense prayer that the fish spits him out. That prayer, many scholarly critics don't like that prayer. They think it's a terrible prayer and they think that it was so bad that that's actually the reason why the fish vomited him out because he didn't like that prayer. But but many of the prophets seem a lot like people who are capable of having amazing spiritual insight into the destiny of humankind but can't actually see what's going to happen to them next week. But he knew that he had to Oh yeah, he knew that. Well, he knew that. I mean, I mean, I mean. You have to understand. A prophet is someone who, despite even even though he's an anti-prophet in a way, a prophet is someone who is completely subsumed with God's existence. They know that everything that happens is for a divine plan. And if God tells you to go somewhere and you don't go, and suddenly you're in a boat that's falling apart, you know why that is, and you're knew immediately. This was a supernatural storm. A supernatural storm. What I might do is we might take a break and come back to Yonah because there are levels of Yonah that I need to take it to and hopefully we'll do Yonah and still manage to do Micha. Um, but as I say, there's nothing minor about these prophets. And uh, bear in mind that the Yonah is clearly an allegory for something. And just before we go to the break, let's may, we may as well just quickly summarize in two seconds chapter 4. And in chapter 4, obviously, he wanders through. The rabbis tell us that it wasn't just the case that Yonah turned up in Nineveh. He turned up, he turned up with the fish. <laughs> Walked 900 miles across land with this fish. Is he going to cook it? No, no, no. It was massive fish. In other words... That was their, that's their way of indicating that when Yonah turned up, the story of his miraculous adventure and all the rest of it was already well known to the population of Nineveh, so they took him seriously. He wasn't just a madman walking around. And he walked through Nineveh for several days, a big city, saying, you've got to repent, or Nineveh near Pachet, it's going to be, the whole city is going to be overturned and destroyed. And everyone from the king right down to the lowest person, they all put on sackcloth, they all fast, they all do this great big public symbolic repentance. By the way, what was their sin? They were in the grip of a malaise which the book of Yonah refers to as Hamas. The word Hamas, the word Hamas means violent robbery. And the word Hamas is applied to a society where it uh, undergoes all sorts of, of kind of, it's in a corrupt, degraded state, but it's always violent. And, uh, and, and, and it just descended into this horrendous situation. But they transform, and then Yonah goes, and he sits on a hill, and he waits for the city to be destroyed. And God doesn't do it, and Yonah's really, really cross. At the end of the day, God teaches him a lesson, because it's really hot on the hill, and so God causes a plant to give him shade. And Yonah goes, that's nice, beautiful, sitting now. I've got a nice shade. I've got an umbrella. And then God overnight gets a worm to eat the root of the plant. And the plant dies. And Yonah goes, what are you doing? Kill me now. And God goes, I'm teaching you a lesson, right? You have pity for the plant, for one plant that you didn't even know existed yesterday. 
and I should not have pity over a city that has kind of 120,000 people and all this cattle and whatever. Have a coffee, we'll come back. I want to uh, just really uh, delve for a minute into what I talked about before the break, which is the allegorical reading of, of Yonah. Because many people have tried to work out whether or not, I mean, there's definitely an allegorical level happening there. Every single aspect of Yonah, and it's actually written in very, very, quite clear Hebrew. If your Hebrew is moderately okay, and your modern Hebrew is moderately okay, you would have no problem getting through the book of Yonah. And it's a very specific, very simple, specific text. And that tends to let us think that it's, it's highly constructed and it's an allegory. What's it an allegory for? And there are different theories about that. One idea, which is mentioned uh, in, in quite a number of sources, one obvious allegory that a number of different sources have pointed towards is an allegory of the individual. That Yonah represents the soul in the body. And that in fact a soul is directed towards a particular ethical, moral and divine calling. And when a person avoids their destiny and avoids fulfilling their own spiritual potential and they block off that side of themselves, then the body, represented by the boat, starts to break up. Quite a number of sources have looked at that. It's a very, very interesting idea. Those of you who've dabbled in that kind of, uh, in any form of spiritual healing, will know that the relationship between one's spiritual and psychological well-being and the physical welfare of the body are deeply linked. And so Yona is often seen as a thing. We all avoid things in life. We all avoid things that we know that we should do, that would be the right thing to do, and it doesn't mean that we do the wrong thing, but we kind of run away from the effort that would be involved in doing the right thing. And what the book is telling us on that allegorical line is that that has consequences for the body. So there's one major allegory. Another, another major allegory is the idea that, uh, well, a major point coming out of Yonah, is the idea that a theme is that the, univ the remarkable observation that the justice of God is a universal concept. The fact that a prophet of Israel is sent to another nation to preach repentance uh, talks about, really points towards not just a universalization of the concept of God, which fits nicely into the framework of the prophetic revolution that's happening in the 8th century, but, but that, that justice is universalized, that, that nations are expected in their own domain to behave in an ethical, moral way. All societies must be founded on justice. And then the really big allegory the mythical allegory. We looked at the individual allegory of the soul in the body, but the really big allegory is that Yonah <coughs> is the Jewish people. And Yonah is the people of Israel 
who are given a task, and we see this task repeated throughout the prophets, who are given a task to be a light unto the nations. And not to be that Yiddish expression, a tzaddik in pelts, someone who's very righteous in their own life, but basically wraps their coat around them and says, puts their talus over their head and says, I'm fine and the rest of the world can go to hell. That the Jewish people are in fact beholden to the, the world and are given a directive and a mission to reach out on a higher level of justice and call for repentance and call for relationship with the divine. And when the Jewish people avoid that, then they are sent into exile. Exile, obviously, as represented by the fish. So these, are, these are some of the allegorical issues related in Yonah. I wish we had a little bit more time because Yonah is really the fourth chapter of Yonah, the final chapter where he's sitting overlooking the city, waiting for it to be destroyed. And he's angry. This is the thing. Yonah is angry. Having run away, he's now angry at God. And he tells God, I'm angry with you. Because I knew you would do this. You schlepped me all the way here. That's why I ran away in the first place. Because I knew that you would do this. You schlepped me all this way. I go through all that hassle. I preach the word of God. I preach repentance. And then you don't destroy them. Like, oh, what's the point? I knew you'd do that. That's pretty much what Yonah is upset about. So he's a very conflicted prophet, but so therefore, and, and appears at times kind of petulant and childish in that last chapter. Until we kind of look at it, what I said at the beginning, that we realize that on a deeper historical level, it's not for nothing that Nineveh was chosen as the city. It's not the only city mentioned in the story. They could have used Tarshish, they could have used anywhere. He's sent to Nineveh, which is the capital of the nation that is going to destroy his own society. He doesn't want a situation where God is going to be able to turn to Israel and say, look, the inhabitants of Nineveh did repentance and you didn't listen to your prophets. I sent a prophet there for three days and they listened to him and I've been sending prophets to you for a hundred years and you haven't listened to anything. He doesn't want that situation and he's pretty upset at God. That's Yonah. And we could talk about Yonah till the fish come home. But um, we are going to move on to the gigantic text that is Micha. As I said at the beginning, if someone comes to you and says, I just want to read one prophet and I don't want to read too much and I just want one Navi that's going to carry the whole thing and contain a bit of everything and really give over the essential message of the prophetic revolution of Israel, it would be the book of Micha. It is seven chapters long. Now what's interesting, don't look at it just yet, look here because I want to put it in historical context. Once again, I keep saying, if you don't understand the historical context of the prophets and where they're sitting and the challenges they're facing and the environment they're talking about, it's very difficult to understand their message. 
Unfortunately, with Micha, we have a very, very good pinpoint for him because he talks about it. And he talks about it pretty much in his first chapter. He describes what's going on. And based on his description, we kind of pretty much know where he's sitting on the timeline. Because as you know, in minus 720, 722 minus 720, is when the Assyrians came and they ethnically cleansed the northern kingdom. They ended it. And we saw last week in Amos, towards the end of Amos, that he predicts that. Remember his encounter with that priest at Bethel? And he says to him, well, I'm going to tell you. Here it is. The northern kingdom will be destroyed. And that happens. The Assyrians come through. Then... As we discussed when we looked at the book of Isaiah, we went to some historical depth on that, is that 20 years later, 20 years later, the Assyrian minus, around, well, 20 years later, around about minus 700, the Assyrians are back, this time invading the kingdom of Judah. And remember, under King Hezekiah, Judah, Jerusalem has this miraculous salvation. In the first chapter of Micha, Micha is describing how the Assyrians are ravaging the Judean countryside. So the Assyrians are already invading, but this great miracle with Jerusalem has apparently not yet happened. So he must be kind of around here. He is a contemporary of Isaiah. And his focus, after the first few verses of the first chapter, where he talks about the fall of Shomron, the fall of Samaria, after those first few verses, he's focused primarily on Judah. We know, we know from archaeological excavations, that the invasion of Assyria of the kingdom of Judah around minus 700 was brutal. The Assyrians were not people who came in and said, you know, they weren't the British. They didn't come in and say, okay, let's raise a flag and sing God save the king and the Assyrians, what was the second largest town in, in Judah, outside Jerusalem? What was the largest city outside Jerusalem? The second largest city in Judah was Lachish. And the excavations of Lachish have shown us the brutality and totality of the Assyrian conquest of Lachish. And in fact, we've even seen depictions of it in Assyrian murals. And the excavations have backed it up. They've found thousands of arrowheads and skulls and all sorts of things because the slaughter was intense. The Assyrians did not leave people behind. This is what, when we looked at Isaiah, this is what was freaking Hezekiah and Isaiah out, is the fact that 
<laughs> they were coming for Jerusalem. It wasn't a conquer and leave situation. They were coming to wipe out the southern kingdom. They had already repopulated the northern kingdom with their own people. They had ethnically cleansed it entirely. So the Assyrians are around. And Micha is looking at this situation, describing it. And that's chapter 1, so we can date it. And in chapter 2, he talks about, in very harsh terms, he talks about why this is happening. And once again, I really, really want to emphasize this. I really want to emphasize this. I don't want anyone to be in any doubt. The prophets of Israel, when they blame circumstance, when they describe and try and explain why bad crap is happening, do not say, oh, it's because they made a treaty with X. It's because of another nation who didn't like us and made a treaty with this one. It's because, you know, it's not fair. There's no one watching. How could you let that country get nuclear weapons? How come that president gets elected who doesn't like us? The prophets of Israel do not blame anyone outside of Israel. They blame the Jewish people themselves. That's how you know you're a real prophet. Because just as it is nationally, so it is individually. All transformation must begin with self-reflection and self-criticality. And Micha's got some very, very harsh descriptions of the wickedness of the society that is being invaded by the Assyrians. Remember that the king of Judah at the time is actually someone who's going to go on to be a righteous king. He's talking about the society. And the society is full of people who lie on their bed at night and... <coughs> I mean, we all lie on our bed at night. We all think about things, don't we? And different people think about different kinds of things, lying in bed at night, trying to go to sleep. And you're all lying, he says it, you're all lying on your beds and all you're thinking about is how you're going to screw over someone the next day when it becomes light in the morning, you're going to get up and you're going to screw them over, you're going to exploit, you're going to get it and you're going to get this and everybody's in pursuit of assets and money. It's not a simple chapter to read, chapter 2, because it's a very harsh description of the wickedness of the people. And then chapter 3 is a very, very important chapter. Because chapter 3, he then turns to the leadership of the Jewish people. Shimunar Yisrael. Hear now, O you heads of Israel. Now there are three types of leaders he talks about. He doesn't talk about the king, interestingly enough. 
talks about judges who are corrupt. Everybody's on the take. Everybody is on the take. People can't get proper justice because all judges are in the pay of someone. He talks about the priests who are also don't lift a finger to teach or guide anyone unless they're getting paid for it. And he talks about the prophets. And he says, there are so many false prophets and you have become so degenerate in your prophecy, in your utilization of the people. You, won't, you don't even prophesy unless you're getting paid for it and you use magic and you pretend and you don't know what you're talking about but you pretend you're a prophet. He says, therefore, there's going to come a time not too far away, took a couple of centuries, but not too far away, where there will be no more prophecy. Where there will be no more prophecy. He is, in fact, talking about the end of the first temple period. Laila lachem michazon, says Micha. It's going to be a night for you from vision. Jewish people will not have prophecy. Because you have abused it. You've taken this idea of prophecy and you sell false prophecies to the people. All of you are false prophets. There's only, the only true prophet is me. Why is Micha saying, how do I know I'm the only prophet? Because I'm the only one who's telling it how it is. I'm the only one who is actually critical of the behavior of the Jewish people. I'm not telling you what you want to hear. I'm telling you how it is and why these things are happening to you. And in the very, very big prophecy in that chapter 3, he tells them that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Not in his time, but the temple will be destroyed. This is the breakdown leading up. We're not entirely sure when that prophecy was said. Maybe that happened after the uh, salvation. We're not sure, but the idea is that just as Shomron was ploughed under, so will Jerusalem. Now, as a result of which, now actually he said it before the salvation of Jerusalem because it was actually, what am I talking about? It's actually that prophecy that saved Jerusalem. The prophecy came true a couple of centuries later, but Micha said it about his generation. And we know from the book of Jeremiah Go to chapter 26. Remember chapter 26 of the book of Jeremiah, the famous temple speech? In that book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah comes down and says, if you don't fix things up, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and people want to kill him for saying that. And then a whole lot of other people were saying, wait a minute, what about the book of Micha? This is amazing. In the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 26, they talk about the prophecy of Micha. And they say, Micha said the same thing. And yet, and they listened to him and disaster was averted. Maybe we should be very careful what we do with Jeremiah. Because he's not the first prophet to have said that. So really, chapter 3 
is a prophecy that changed a nation and changed a king. And the whole nation had this massive repentance and Jerusalem was saved as we saw in the book of Isaiah. Now, chapter 3 is much more than I'm giving over. I'm going to urge you to read chapter 3 amongst other things. It's not, it's, we're not, we're not, we haven't yet reached the crescendo with Micha, but just chapter 3 and his castigation of the leaders and the false prophets and his ultimate prophecy. Just one second, actually have a look quickly at chapter 3 because there is some very, very important psukim and he goes through it and he talks about the leaders. Now, who's going to read me the translation of one verse? Good. Verse 12, the last verse. After he's gone through all of this and eventually he says... Assuredly, because of you, Zion sh shall be ploughed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the Temple Mount a shrine in the woods. In fact, uh, it's, we kind of, in contemporary English, we kind of miss out some of the dynamics of the translation, of the verse in that translation, because it, lachen, doesn't necessarily mean assuredly. I mean, anyone with Anyone with Ulpan Aleph Hebrew could understand this modern Hebrew because it's very modern. Lachen, therefore, biglalchem, because of you, the prophets, no one else, the prophets, the religious leaders of the Jewish people who are selling people a false consciousness and false hope. I mean, already in chapter 2, he says, This is not where we're supposed to have arrived at. Things might be going well economically, but this is all wrong. Because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will be a heap of rubble and the Temple Mount like the high places of the forest. Now, then, 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 Chapters 4 and 5 of Micha. I'll just want to just hovercraft over them quickly. Um, but I need, in essence, they're, they're worth reading when you go home. Read the book of Micha. It's only seven chapters. But chapters 4 and 5 deal, as every prophet does, but Micha's description. This, this, is, this is where we talk about Micha as being kind of like Isaiah, but on turbo. Because in chapters 4 and 5, Micha gives over the messianic vision. And we notice this with a lot of the prophets. No sooner have they given the most harsh critique than they suddenly uh, break light and give this incredible messianic vision of what it could be and what it will be when you transform. And Micha's description of the messianic age is right up there with all of them. It's right as sublime as Isaiah's vision. In fact, there are echoes of Isaiah in there. Including the idea that all nations will turn their war implements into farming tools. But what we find in chapters 4 and 5 is this very interesting idea, and I can't go into it now, it's a very mystical idea. And it's about this concept of the daughter of Zion who gives birth. The daughter of Zion who gives birth. And giving birth, it's the daughter of Zion who gives birth. I don't know how many people have given birth in this room. Obviously, maybe a few, right? But, 
by all accounts, I'm told, right, that sometimes it can hurt. And therefore, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, everybody knows that. And that, that, that metaphor is used, Zion, the daughter of Zion gives birth to the messianic age, which is the origin of the idea that the coming of the Messiah for the world is not necessarily an easy thing for us. It's not an easy thing for us. Make no mistake. In the view of the prophets and in the view of Jewish mystics who are able to continue this perception of the Messianic age from the prophets, the Messiah is the Messiah for the whole world. It's an, it's a, it's a, it's, it, the Messiah is a symbol of the achievement of humankind to realize its ability to live in harmony with itself and with the divine. And yet, the Jewish people are responsible for producing that Messiah. That Messiah who's going to be something like Nelson Mandela times Mahatma Gandhi times 10 on crack is that Messiah is someone that has to be produced by the Jewish people. And producing it is not easy. It brings about, it comes through Chevleleda, the, the pangs of birth. And that explains often why there's such speculation about the difficult times that the Jewish people will go through before the Messianic age. And that kind of has its origin in Micha. And the idea that, that, the, that the Messiah is someone who uh, is obviously of the origin of the house of David from, from Bethlehem and so on. It, these things have great origin in Micha. But I need to talk to you uh, now, if you if 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 you were going to say to someone, if you were going to say to someone who said, "I only want to read one prophet," and you say, "Okay, read the prophet Micha because he's got everything and it's sublime and it's seven chapters," they go, "I'm not going to read the whole book. I just want one chapter." <laughs> then you say to them, "Well, if you can only read one chapter of any book." then you're going to take them to understand the essence of the entire prophetic message then you're going to take the book of Micha and you're going to read chapter 6 wait and then the person goes ah oh, I can't read a whole chapter right? so then you say to them don't look don't look don't look and then you say to them alright you can't read a whole chapter then just read two verses Read verse 7. Because if we are going to effect this revolution, we have to change our entire conception of God and our relationship with God. This is what the prophets have been going on about. Okay, so you want me to affect myself and you want me to change my relationship with God? Don't read it. Don't read it just yet. Well, you do that at home. Listen, I'm going to change my relationship with God. What does that mean? Does that mean that I have to become religious? Does God want thousands 
of sacrifices of 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 sheep with myriads of rivers of oil that I'm bringing with these sacrifices in other words and don't just think sacrifices in bringing a sheep to an altar sacrifice means a religious ritual that I'm going to do again and I'm going to do intensely is that what God wants? don't read it ha'eten <laughs> b'chori Pishi, should I give over my firstborn for my sin? In other words, the ultimate kind of sacrifice. Privit nichatat nafshi, the fruit of my womb for the sin of my soul. Is that what God wants? Now that's verse 7 and then the person says, I can't read two verses, just give me one verse. And the one verse that sums up the entire prophetic tradition is Micha. Remember this, have it tattooed on your back. Micha 6, 8. Listen, listen, even if you don't know the Hebrew, listen to the Hebrew. And those of you who do know the Hebrew will be astonished by how straightforward it is. And I'll translate as we go. Is that what God wants? Is what God want all those things? He has already told you, man, what is good. And what God wants from you. Just do justice. Ahavat chesed. The love of loving kindness. And walk humbly with your God. That is all God wants. Now, it's not necessarily as easy as it sounds. You have to be honest. Not easy for a lot of people. You have to be kind of humble. Not easy for some people. But at the end of the day, this is a complete wipeout of institutionalized religion. He has already told the prophets they don't know what they're talking about. All of the leaders, the priests, the judges, the prophets, anybody involved with organized religion, he has completely shunned. And now he's dealing with the deep conceptual stuff. And he's saying, our relationship with the divine has to be fundamentally different and you have all been got it, getting it wrong. There's a false consciousness. Chapter 6 of the book of Micha is a completely revolutionary chapter. And it, as are all the prophets, but Micha manages to sum it up in the most succinct way. And then, uh, then, 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 then we get chapter 7. Yes? I can summarize that in one word, mensch. Yes, be a mensch. And then we get chapter 7. And chapter 7 is Micha's discussion 
on the concept of teshuva, on the concept of repentance. Because really, it's not enough just to say, oh, okay, that's very nice. That's warm and fuzzy. I'll be a mensch. I'll be a nice person. So a lot of people, it's a bit like when you see someone, I mean, to bring it into very crass terms, when you read about someone that's done a heinous crime, tragically today we're often reading about people that do heinous crimes, (coughs) and they're brought before a court, and very often they'll say, I'm really sorry, I'm a changed person, I won't do it again, Please don't put me in jail or whatever it is you're going to do. I won't do it again. Now that's not enough. It's not enough. person has to really reach inside themselves. We, we as a society, we inflict punishments on people because we need them to do that reach or leave you the opportunity to do that reach. But you've got to reach inside you and you actually have to very, very deeply come to terms with the things that you've done in the past that are not right. That's what Teshuvah demands. But it has a very, very transformative outcome. Chapter 7 is about that. There's a very famous phrase uh, from verse 2 of chapter 7, just before he gets on to Teshuvah, which is Avad Chasid Minaret, that the that the pious or the kind person has disappeared from the land. No one seems to be understanding there, but I want someone to read... um, I want someone to read verses... uh, Who's going to read? Who's going to read? You read nicely, but we'll give someone else a chance. Who's who's going to read? No one wants to read? Okay, you'll read. Not that I have a problem with you reading. I just thought we'd share it around. And also, and also share the translations around. Um, I want you to read. I want, but you've all follow in your translations. Chapter 7, 7 to 9. Yet I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God who saves me. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I have fallen, I rise again. Though I sit in the darkness, the Lord is my light. I must hear the anger of the Lord since I have sinned against him. Until he champions my cause and upholds my claim, he will let me out into the light. I will enjoy vindication by him. Uh, I, I, I want you to see the um, inadequacy of translation. It, it, it's like they're, they're stumbling over. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. But it can't come anywhere near the sublime simplicity and just power of the Hebrew, which is so much more succinct. And I, I will, I, the support is to look out for or to expect. I will wait, I will wait expectantly for God. I will wait for the God of my salvation. God will hear me. Repentance doesn't happen instantly simply because you say that you feel better now or I feel like I'm changed now. It's a, it's a transformation you have to wait for. And you have to wait 
I mean, you make the decisions, but you've got to wait patiently. This is what Micha tells us. Al tismichi o yavdili. Do not rejoice over me, you who have been an enemy to me. And either he's talking to, either the penitent is talking to themselves about their evil inclination, or we could look at this in a broader canvas about the fact that we create enemies through our deficient behavior. Ki nafalti kamti, because I fell down, but now I'm getting up. Ki eshev bachoshech, because I've been sitting in darkness Though I sit in darkness, Hashem Orli. Hashem Orli. God is a light to me. Za'af Hashem is I will carry the, the, the um, I will bear as burden the, the wrath of God. Kichatatilo, because I have sinned against him. Don't make expectations of God. Who is saying this, David? Micha is saying this. Micha is saying this. Micha is saying this. But I've always understood Micha is saying this as, as, a, as a prayer for a true penitent. And if in fact you do affect that transformation, or you're not sure if that transformation can be affected because of the nature of your indiscretions or your sins, and he's talking not only individually but nationally, then we have at the end of chapter 7, the end of the book of Micha, by the way, which, which also goes over a whole historical review of different things. And then we have these amazing verses of chapters, uh, of, uh, ending the chapter from uh, verse 18, verse 18 to 20. Who's going to read this? I can read. Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and... Remission oh. transgression. Who has not maintained his wrath forever against the remnant of his own people because he loved righteousness? He will take us back in love. He will cover up our iniquities. He, he will hurl all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will keep faith with Jacob, loyalty to Abraham, as you promised an, on oath to our fathers in days gone by. It's Yom Kippur. It's also the three verses that anyone who's anyone ever been to uh, the ceremony of Tashlich, right, on Rosh Hashanah, you say that these are the verses that you say then. How do you get a nation to repent? This was the challenge of the Nevi'im. At the end of the day, they failed. But it was still important that they said their message. Where they succeeded, they succeeded big time. Micha and Yeshayahu managed to change their generation to effect the aversion of a horrendous wipeout. Other prophets were not successful. Jeremiah was not successful in getting a nation to change itself. But Jeremiah, as you know, was told from the very beginning of his prophecy, it's too late. What does it mean? To redeem the world, it means to start now to redeem the world, to make it a better place. That's what the prophets are saying. The prophets are only talking about Mashiach in terms of giving the people a picture, giving us a picture of what it could look like. And Michaz is as astounding as any. V'naharu alav. And all the nations will come to Jerusalem and stream over it. 
because it will be seen as the center of peace for the whole world. No one does that but us. No one can do that but us. Even, even with all the great... Uh, I'm just checking the time, make sure I'm not on my soapbox for too long. Uh, even with all the great spiritual systems that are in the world, and they may not necessarily even disappear. They may not necessarily even disappear. I'm not someone who believes, based on everything that I've looked at, that the spiritual discourses of Christianity and Islam need to, be, need to disappear in order for this picture of the prophets to be fulfilled. But I can tell you, based on many years of studying Jewish history, is that there's really only one candidate nation that is going to be able to effect that ultimately at the end of the day, and that's us, because we belong in Jerusalem, and because Jerusalem is the geopolitical center of the world, you can see it if you look at the map, and because we've been through everything, we're everywhere, we've been everywhere, we are everywhere, and yet we're centered, and it's only going to happen when we start looking at ourselves. I'm serious. We have to stop saying that it's someone else or it's something else. Even within this room. Even within this room. Even within me. Even within all of us. We have to say, we have to change and then the world will change. Ah, I'm trying to better myself every day, but the world is still getting crappier. That's what we're going to look at next week with Habakkuk. That's the question we're now left with. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.